But there's so much. Anyone who watches this and has read their Bible, there's so much, of course, that's, you know, added to it to give it story. And I'm sure there's a lot that's not particularly addressed in the actual, you know, written word of God. Um, but it threw off a bunch of things, too, that, you know, we're not reading in Scripture. And so we're not really going to be dealing with the movie. But being that the movie came out and it's a hit and all sorts of people have heard about it and seen it and, you know, whatnot, we're going to be talking about the topic of uh, the Exodus dealing with Moses and so forth. But I want to go ahead and bring our guest on here, Brother Luther Williams. What's up, brother? How are you doing? Hey, brother, I'm fine. You know, brother, the love is mutual. I really appreciate everything that you're doing in the current Reformation and this series of shows, along with what you've done on Facebook and other venues and behind the scenes. And I'm very grateful to be on the show again. Thanks for having me. Oh, man. I'm, uh, it's hard to get you because you're so busy. But, um, but yeah, you, I, I can't even tell you how much help you've been to me and uh, you continue to be to me as we study. Luther's one of those guys that if you talk to him, and, you know, we're on a program. So sometimes we've got to step it up and try to present something professional and, and so forth. But when we're one-on-one, -on -one, man, this guy can just, uh, he can go on a roll. I'm telling you, he just connects things, reminds me of Tim Martin and uh, Jeff Vaughn and uh, Norman Voss, these, these brothers are outstanding, uh, you know, men of God who've studied God's words, and uh, they just continue to do so. But, uh, you know, I figured I'd start off with Deuteronomy 32. Give ear, now this is Young's literal, okay, so we're trying to be as literal as we can in understanding what it's saying, and even then you want to go into the Hebrew and understand that. But anyway, Deuteronomy 32, 1, give ear, O heavens, and I speak, and thou doest hear, O earth sayings of my mouth, drop as rain doth my doctrine, flow as dew doth my sayings, as storms on the tender grass and as showers on the earth. For the name of Jehovah I proclaim, ascribe ye greatness to our God, the rock, perfect is his work, for all his ways are just, God of steadfastness and without iniquity, righteous and upright is he. Now, there's a lot of key details that I think we're going to be getting into, but Moses is speaking here, and I believe, obviously, God obviously speaking through Moses by the Spirit, and he's teaching the children of Israel. So just to start as a preliminary, he is talking to the children of Israel, and he's considering them heavens and earth. And this isn't the only circumstance where the, he's speaking to the covenant people, calling them heavens and earth. But I thought I'd start there because we're going to be going down a parallel understanding the exodus of old in Moses' day, and then showing you the fulfillment of this in the New Testament. And many people say this online, and they're right in saying, hey, the, the second exodus, you know, all that ties in doctrinally with the coming of the Lord, him wrapping things up, him saving his people from their sins and so forth. And they understand that that's all tied into an eschaton, their eschatology, study of last things. So when they start seeing this stuff and they understand that this exodus is coming near, and some people are thinking it's happening now today, well, that's because they think that the second coming is about to occur or the Lord is going to be coming and he's going to be judging. He's also going to be resurrecting and so forth. But we're here going to show you guys something in the scriptures to fulfilling this idea. And so being that I read that, um, if you'd like to add something there before I read something, Luther, I'd love it. That'd be, that'd be wonderful. Well, uh, Derek, you know, uh, 
what we're dealing with here is the birth of the corporate Christ. And just as God took a people out of Egypt and formed them for his namesake, uh, that was a type. What he did with the children of Israel was merely a type and a shadow of what he did in the last days uh, with his people, the church. And what we're going to see is the birth of Christ, the head and the body, just like any baby, the head gets born first. Just like any baby, there's a gestation period of uh, 40, dealing with 40. With a human being, it's 40 weeks. With uh, the church, it was 40 years. And we're going to see astounding parallels. They're there. I don't think anybody, uh, to my knowledge, has treated this subject thoroughly in writing, uh, although many have poked and prodded around the edges of it. Some of your discussions, I think, have gone deeper than I've heard. So I hope the listeners uh, enjoy the parallels uh, that we uh, that we highlight here between those two oh. uh, between those two times. Outstanding. Yeah, I think I think we're going to do something special here tonight. And you know what's interesting? Before I begin, we've got right now we have really 50 minutes before the show cuts off. We even planned on doing a 45 minute show, but it's going to estimate 45 to you know 55 minutes roughly just to close up. Um, nothing longer than that. So I'm going to go ahead and begin and flow through this as quickly as possible so that I can leave time for Luther to comment, and we'll both comment back and forth on some of these parallels between Christ and Moses. So we're taking a look at the lives of the Bible's two main characters, or estimated two main characters, one of the Old Testament, which would be Moses, and the New Testament, Christ. So this is how we can, it's easy to see the divinely inspired God's word of Christ coming in. So if you would argue against Moses being the most important character of the Old Testament, but uh, nobody would argue against Jesus being the main character of the New Testament. Similarity for the two characters were separated by over thousands or thousand years is quite remarkable. Um, you know, God tried to speak directly to the people of Israel on Mount Sinai, and it didn't go very well. The people begged Moses not to allow God to speak to them again. They asked to have someone speak to them from before God, in other words, a mediator between them and God. Well, in Deuteronomy, Moses gives a very important prophecy in response to their plea. He predicts that God will raise up another prophet like him, which would be Jesus Christ, obviously. Um, this prophet would speak the words of God for the people so they would not have to speak directly to God. And, and this is what Moses says. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brethren. Him you shall heed, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb. On the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They have rightly said all that they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not heed to, him, uh, heed to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Deuteronomy 18, 15-19. Jesus was clearly the mediator who Moses was talking about. He was the one man who could speak God's words directly to the people. Why? Because he was God. He was God with a human nature who could speak God's words to them. Let's take a look at just some of these similarities of the lives of Jesus and Moses to each other. You know, like let's compare them. And after after we see this comparison, it's a lengthy one, okay? Um, you can't imagine how this could have happened by accident, okay? This is too much evidence. You may not agree with everything that is that I'm going to mention here, which is fine, but there's so much here that is paralleled. Just if you've read your Bible or if you've ever read Genesis to Revelation, this stuff should ring a bell. So catch this. Moses was born as a Hebrew. 
Jesus was born as a Hebrew. Easy. Moses was chosen by God to be a leader. Jesus was chosen by God to be a leader. That's easy. Moses was born while his people were suffering under a cruel leader, Pharaoh. Jesus was born while his people were suffering under a cruel leader, Herod. Moses hid in Egypt as a child. Jesus hid in Egypt as a child. The leader of the land that Moses was born into tried to kill all the babies when he was born. The leader of the land that Jesus was born into tried to kill all the babies when he was born. Moses turned water into blood. By God, of course. Jesus turned water into wine. Moses died on a hill. Jesus died on a hill. Moses fasted 40 days and faced a spiritual crisis. Jesus fasted 40 days and faced a spiritual crisis on a mountain. So they both did it on a mountain. Moses told people about the need for a Passover lamb. Jesus became the Passover lamb. Moses founded a new, if you will, uh, people, including a covenant or religion, however you want to pronounce that. Jesus founded the new covenant or a religion kind of idea. Moses communicated directly with God. Jesus communicated directly with God. Moses performed miracles. Jesus performed miracles. Moses revised an existing covenant or, if you will, religion, however you want to look at that. Jesus revised an existing covenant of religion. Moses was a lawgiver, gave the Ten Commandments. Jesus was the lawgiver, gave the Great Commandment. Moses was hated by the ruling party, Egyptians. Jesus was hated by the ruling party, Pharisees. Moses had brothers and sisters who misunderstood him. Jesus had brothers and sisters who misunderstood him. Moses chose 12 leaders to follow. Jesus chose 12 leaders to follow. Moses gave his people a new identity as a people. Jesus gave his people a new identity as a people. Moses had followers who strayed from his teaching. Jesus had followers who strayed from his teaching. Moses is arguably the lead figure of the Old Testament. Jesus is the lead figure of the, uh, figure of the New Testament. Bottom line. Moses taught his followers how to pray. Jesus taught his followers how to pray. Moses chose to, uh, people to carry on when he was leaving. Jesus chose people to carry on when he was leaving. Moses led his people to the promised land. Jesus led his people to the promised land. Moses sent 12 spies to Canaan so he could bring people to the promised land. Jesus sent 12 disciples to the world so he could bring people to the promised land. Moses appointed 70 rulers over Israel. Jesus appointed 70 disciples to the nation. The people picked up stones to stone Moses, but they did not succeed. The people picked up stones to stone Jesus, but they did not succeed. Moses controlled the waters of the Red Sea. Jesus controlled the Sea of Galilee. Moses brought living water out of the rock. Jesus brings living water to all of his believers. The face of Moses shone with glory on Mount Sinai. The face of Jesus shone with glory on Mount, the Mount of Transfiguration. Moses lifted up the brazen serpent in the wilderness to heal people. Jesus was lifted up on the cross to heal us from our sins or his people. Moses was a shepherd. Jesus was the good shepherd. Moses subdued an attacking army by raising his arm high on the top of a hill with two other people. Jesus subdued sin and death with both of his arms raised up on a hill on the cross with two other people. Moses said another prophet would come, Jesus. Jesus said another would come, the Holy Spirit. Those who did not follow Moses died in the wilderness because of their lack of faith. Those who refused to follow Jesus died in the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Jesus had warned them it was coming, and as history shows, that the Christians left right before the siege started because of the remembrance of the work of Jesus. Those who did not believe Jesus stayed and were either killed or sold to slavery. Moses fed thousands supernaturally with bread. 
Jesus fed thousands supernaturally with bread. Moses took a Gentile bride. Jesus took a Gentile bride, which is now called the church. Moses led the Israelites in a victory song after the victory in Egypt. This song will be repeated at the end as a victory song for Jesus. Now, in Revelation chapter 15, verse 2 and 3, I could stop for a second just to read that, but it's clearly the song of Moses. Revelation 15, 2 through 3. This is fulfilled in Christ. There is a long period of silence in the story of Moses from the time he was a child until adulthood. There's a long period of silence in the story of Jesus from the time he was a child until adulthood. Moses showed compassion to a woman getting water at a well. Jesus showed compassion to a woman getting water at a well. Moses' mission was to redeem Israel from slavery to Egypt. Jesus' mission was to redeem mankind, or his people, from slavery to sin. Moses was loved and supported by his sister, Miriam, which is Miram, I don't know how to pronounce it in Hebrew, but Jesus was loved and supported in his ministry by his mother, Mary, which is also Miriam in Hebrew. Moses gave God's law on a mountain. Jesus gave the new law from the mountain of the Beatitudes, or Sermon on the Mount. Moses offered his life for the salvation of his people after the sin of the golden calf. Jesus offered his life for the salvation of the world. Moses rejected a lavish ruling lifestyle in the house of Pharaoh. Instead, he chose a humble life. Jesus rejected the offers of Satan to be the ruler of this world and instead chose a humble life. Moses washed Aaron and his sons with water. Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. And this goes on and on. But I do want to just hit something real quick here. I know you're going to love this, Luther, and then I'm going to shut up and we can talk because this is good. All right. Numbers chapter 20. And man, this is so, the fingerprints all over the place. You can't stop it. It's, it's inevitable. You got to really get your black permanent <laughs> marker out. And start. It's <laughs> start erasing this. That I don't know anyone who would be who would dare stand up and say these aren't comparisons. So a lot of people want to go. Well, they fabricated this and stuff. It's kind of funny how all these different texts at different various times, all these different writers are all talking and speaking of the same fulfillment of Moses. But anyway, needless to say, in Numbers chapter twenty. It describes a scene where God punishes Moses for striking a rock to get water. Because of this event, Moses is unable to enter the promised land. So why was God so upset with Moses for striking the uh, the rock to get water? Well, there were the obvious reasons, like he was disobeying God and acting arrogant. This is the way that an Old Testament audience would have interpreted. But now that we have the Bible as a whole, we can see that there was more to it than that. Let's get some help from Paul. Paul says, I want you to know, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same supernatural food and all drank the same supernatural drink. They drank from the supernatural rock which followed them and the rock was Christ, 1 Corinthians 10, 1-4. Here, Paul refers to Christ as the rock which provided water to the Israelites. Many times in the New Testament, the authors refer to Christ as a rock. Even in the Old Testament, God is referred to as a mountain in the Messiah as a rock, which would come from that mountain. So if we agree with Paul, that means Christ was the rock which Moses struck the first time to get water. When he struck the rock, Christ, quote-unquote, Christ, which is the rock, water was provided that gave them salvation. Everywhere they went, this rock was with them, providing everlasting living water to them. Moses was told to never again strike the rock, which is Christ. That striking it once 
was enough. And from that point on, all he had to do was command it to give water. Can you see the symbolism at work here? This is a foreshadowing of Christ's life. Christ, he only had to be struck once on the cross. Because of this, salvation is available to all. Because he was struck, all we have to do is come into covenant with Christ and, and being the mediator from us to God. Brother, what do you think about these things? I mean, there's more to this. There's more. I can give more. And this is just, what do you think about baptism? I mean, man, this just blows me away. It would seem that God with Moses and going into the leadership of Joshua and then yielding to the claim that Caleb made in Joshua chapter 14 was changing the method by which he administered the kingdom. Moses was a man of the hand. I call him a handyman. You'll find the phrase by the hand of Moses some 23 times in the first five books. Uh, and then the, the administration of the kingdom changed to one of the words of the mouth. And apparently, God was introducing this new way of administering the kingdom to Moses. And that's where the, the command to speak to the rock, uh, when it came time for the rock to yield water the second time, instead of striking it. But Moses couldn't do that. But it was confirmed that this was how the kingdom would operate in the opening verses of Joshua. You remember he said, this book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate on it. And the Hebrew word means to mumble and murmur, and it's going to stay in your mouth because in this you're going to prosper and have good success and so forth. So the kingdom was administered initially by the deeds of the hand, and that yielded to the words of the mouth. And then finally, the beliefs of the heart, as it was perfected in Caleb, who gave an inheritance to his daughter and son-in-law. Uh, so it's just interesting how, how God... Uh, progress this. I've heard one preacher say Moses was, uh, it's kind of like playing golf. Moses was a driver, if you can understand that, that club and how it functions. And it, it gets the ball down the fairway, but it's not very accurate and not very useful for making a hole in one. Then you have a mid-iron who would be Joshua, who went into the promised land, conquered the land, apportioned it to the children of Israel, and was buried on the border of his inheritance. And then finally, Caleb, who I think is a severely underrated figure, is the one who really consummated the whole journey. And he says, after waiting for 45 years, give me my inheritance. It was promised me from the very beginning by Moses, and I want it now. Uh, and he was given Hebron. He was blessed by Joshua. And it was then and only then that the land had rest from war. Read that in Joshua 14. And all of that parallels Genesis creation. There was a separation and apportionment of the land, if you will, which corresponds to the first three days of Genesis creation. Then there was a filling of the land, filling by faith, which is what Caleb did after 45 years of waiting. Then finally there was a blessing and the land had rest, which corresponds to day seven of creation. Uh, of course, that's the Sabbath rest. And so we find, uh, among other things, Genesis creation in this in this story. It's fantastic. Yeah. Man, I'm, I'm fascinated. I remember uh, listening to sermons. We've talked about this before, where the baptism, you know, the children of Israel escape, or if you will, are set free from, uh, from Egypt. And they travel through the Dead Sea, the first body of water, with Moses. Then we see them in the wilderness, and so much takes place in the wilderness. Everything from them given um, the Ten Commandments, them being a, a separated people, um, and now they distinguished twelve tribes. And yes. the, the actually, actually, tribe. Derek, you know, it's the it's the Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds uh, uh, that they travel through at first. Uh, 
And I need to check the etymology of it. It's one of the things that I mean to do, but I think I'm going to find something very interesting in uh, in the uh, the word, in the Hebrew morphology and etymology of that word, uh, the Sea of Reeds. I think there's something there. Usually my instincts are pretty good uh, in thinking that there's something there. All you have to do is dig a little bit deeper and you'll find it. But now you gave an extensive list of parallels uh, in opening the show between Moses and Christ. And, and I would add to that doctrine. Doctrine is an important parallel. You read in Deuteronomy chapter 32 in the opening verses uh, where, where mm-hmm. God said to Moses and Moses communicated to all of Israel that his doctrine would drip like showers, would, would, uh, that his doctrine would come and fall like rain. Well, doctrine is also important with Christ. It, that ties in, Deuteronomy 32, with the Great Commission of Matthew 28. Uh, Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, uh, teaching them, there's the doctrine, the Greek word is didaskalos, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. So there's your doctrine uh, dropping like showers in the New Testament. Hmm. Yeah. So just one more parallel. You don't. Have, <laughs> there's so many of them. You got so much to say, dude. I know it. <laughs> yeah, they're, yeah, they're, they're, the the parallels are just uh, astounding. Well, you know, uh, another thing that you've mentioned, and I think we've communicated this back and forth. We are talking about how do we see the Exodus, if you will, in a, a really, I guess you could say, airplane view looking down from a distance, and Tim Martin pointed this out to me one night in conversation over the phone, and um, he mentioned how Moses led the children through the first body of water, and that body of water, it parallels in the New Testament as a part of the Exodus story that we see. John the Baptist, he brought people, bringing them out of Herod's rule and the false you know, teachers and the, the, the darkness during their time, if you will, that wicked generation who was bringing them out of quote-unquote spiritual Egypt in a sense where they were now being brought into covenant with God. They're escaping that, going through John's baptism, just like Israel was going through the first body of water with Moses into the wilderness. And now there's going to be a 40-year wilderness experience with, uh, you know, with Moses and Israel in the wilderness and in the New Testament with you know, the, you know, Christ and, and the church. Up until, obviously, they go into the promised land, which is the second body of water we start to see, which is the, the body of water with Christ. And the second body of water in the Exodus account is the Jordan River. And I thought it was interesting to catch this detail. So they go through two different bodies of water. There's two different baptisms in the New Testament, the baptism of John, the baptism of Christ. And in between those baptisms, if you will, and between those waters, both had a brazen serpent, one had brazen serpent, one had Christ lifted up. Both of them are, if you will, um, a profession of, of faith where someone must believe and have faith in God to enter into this promised land, which Christ was raised up in the second exodus. Then, as they're passing through, I think it's interesting, and I'm pretty sure I'll catch something when I further investigate this. The children of Israel, when they went through Jordan, they put 12 stones in the Jordan River, representing the, tri- the tribes. Well, in the New Testament, the fulfillment we see a lot of times is a spiritual fulfillment of things, kind of like Elijah. Elijah must come, okay? He must come before the Messiah comes. And that was an issue for the Pharisees. 
they asked John if he was, you know, in one of the Gospels, they asked him if he was Elijah. He said no. But Christ said he was, he was Elijah in the spirit, of course, of Elijah. So the spirit of Elijah, if you will, was in Christ. Or, or, or sorry, on John. So when we start looking at this, I'm going, okay, what happened in the second body of water? There were 12 stones that passed through that body of water in the Old Testament. Did the 12 stones pass through the second body of water in the New Testament? I suppose so. That's why we see in Acts that they're now speaking in other languages and they're now getting the, the works of God pro professed and proclaiming the doctrine of God. They're teaching the doctrine of God, and I think that the 12 stones, if you will, are passing through that body of water. you get where I'm coming from with this? Yes, I do. The, the 12 stones, I would agree, pass through the second body of water. The important thing there is what the name of the, of the typical body of water was. As a type in the Old Testament, it was the Jordan, which comes from a Hebrew word that means descending. And that's a picture of the Holy Spirit descending upon the people of God. So if you look at the uh, 12, who, uh, 12 apostles uh, upon whom the Spirit descended, and particularly in the upper room where uh, they, were, uh, uh, they were assembled, and, of course, it was 11 after Judas took his own life, and then Matthias filled the number of 12 again. And then you had in that same upper room 120, which is the same as 12. It's the same number, but it's amplified and clarified. In biblical numerics, 12 and 120 are essentially the same. And that's who was in the upper room when the Jordan descended, if you will, or they went through the second body of water. And so, uh, yeah, I think the parallel is, is very great. I would add, too, that there was uh, significant in this, even though all Israel apparently didn't experience it, there was a third body of water. And that is the body of water that Caleb bequeathed to his daughter and son-in-law as an inheritance. It said that he gave to them the upper and lower springs, indicating heaven and earth. And I think that's very significant because Caleb represents the overcomer. And so if we're to say that in New Testament times there was a Moses, Joshua, then there also would have to be a Caleb in order to complete uh, the, the uh, typical nature of the children of Israel's uh, uh, journey and ordeal. You'd have to have not just a Moses and a Joshua, but a Caleb. So I think wow. that's important that, to consider. That makes me giggle, man. That makes me laugh because that's so amazing. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It is indeed. So when did you pick up on that uh, Caleb thing? Caleb has always been one of my favorite characters. And so uh, I, I guess I gave uh, more time to researching him than I, than I have some others. And uh, also, Caleb is very important in terms of biblical numerics because he waited for 45 years uh, in order for uh, the promise to be fulfilled, the promise that Moses gave to him to be fulfilled. And uh, he did, at the end of that time, receive his inheritance in the land of uh, Hebron, which once belonged to the Anaks. And so um, uh, Caleb, in waiting 45 years, in addition to the complete separation of the land to the other tribes, and then Caleb comes on the back end of it and he says, okay, you've had your say, you've got your land, now give me mine. Uh, and, and so uh, he adds to the complete separation or apportionment of the land that was already there. You can read about it in Joshua chapter 14. And that's very important from a, new, from, from a biblical numerical standpoint because the number of separation is 430. We know that 
from the book of Exodus, chapter 12, verses 40 through 42. The children of Israel were in the land of Egypt 430 years to the day, and the text says it twice, so God wants you to know it, and it's very important. And all the people who read the Bible knew it originally. And so what you have there is a threefold separation or apportionment uh, in the land. There are many separations that we could talk about. The important framework for separation is Genesis creation, because there you have the first three days, which are days of separation, and then you have the second three days, which are days of filling. Days one, two, and three are all about separating and naming, and and days uh, four, five, and six are all about filling, filling the daytime and the nighttime with the sun, the moon, and the stars, uh, then filling the sky with the birds and filling the waters uh, with uh, the fish, and then lastly, filling the land with men and animals. So what you have is a complete separation, then a complete filling, and then finally rest. And that's the pattern of Genesis creation set out in Genesis chapter 1 and going into the first three verses, I think, uh, first two or three verses of Genesis chapter 2. Well, that's paralleled in the children of Israel uh, uh, coming into the land and their conquest of it in Joshua 14. And so uh, I studied Caleb. If you add 45 years to the complete separation represented by the number 430, here you got three days of separation, as I said before, 430 plus 430 plus 430, which is 1290. That is the number that the angel Gabriel gave to the prophet Daniel, indicating complete separation in Daniel chapter 12. I talk about it in my book. I talk about it not only in the one that, that's already been released, but in the book that's uh, soon to be published. And then if you add 45 to that, you get 1335. Well, no wonder in Daniel 12, uh, the angel Gabriel also says, blessed is he who waits. That's what Caleb did. He waited to, to get his inheritance, who waits and comes to the 1335 days. So Caleb, this tells me Caleb is an immensely important and overlooked figure, to answer your question. He is, what, he is the key figure of blessing in Daniel chapter 12, besides Christ himself, and Daniel 12 is the great connector of the Bible. It is what connects Genesis to Revelation, and it is the hub of the book of Daniel. So, so we have something wow. extremely important. You know, well, that blows my mind because it actually brought something up we've been studying, and just uh, putting a little hypothesis out here, You've been over and over explaining to me, and this might be a little over some people's heads who may be listening, and that's fine. It was over my head all the, I mean, for a long time. But in the first three days, you mentioned separation. You know, God separates light from darkness. He separates waters from waters and separates waters from land, and there's dry land. And then it that's talks correct. about herb, and so forth. And, 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 and along with and along with separating along with separating brother Derek, he also names he names the he he names the period of darkness night he names the period of of light day, and he names in day two and he names in day three. God does no naming none whatsoever in days four five and six. Wow! Ooh, so naming man, is I part. So, so naming is part of separating. It means to, to conceptually carve out. When you name something, you define the possibilities. And so naming is a function of separating. Mm. 
I never actually caught that, and I've heard you say that. Right, right. And many people don't catch that about Genesis, but it is so. Wow, that's actually uh, really interesting because I was just thinking about it, and what sounds more familiar with with Genesis days 1, 2, and 3, more than, and I think this is interesting, is that you see the children of Israel are being led in the wilderness by a cloud by day and fire by night. And it's interesting, there's day and night. You know, right there, there's day and night. If you will, quote-unquote, first day. Then in the second day, when they get to this, the shore of the sea, the water separated from the waters. And then they travel on dry land, day three. And now they're, they're going through this, being called out, if you will, this idea that you're giving with also the naming idea, which that's a whole other, man, we're, and now that you just opened that, it's funny. It's funny because I've heard you say this four or five times on the phone with me. My hard head never caught it, and here you are on the radio program of all times. And I'm like, man, now we got to expand on this when we get off this program tonight to kind of <laughs> see where this goes. But anyway, needless to say, you, that's amazing, brother. So we have an Exodus account, children of Israel being led by a cloud during the day. There's day and night. Night, there's fire, you know. So day and night there, or if you will, light and darkness, the idea of day one. Day two, water separated from waters, and then day three, there's dry land. Now, here's my thing. Do you see that, if you will, in some sense in the New Testament, that same exact parallel account? For example, day and night, is there any prophetic uh, spiritual understanding of that? Because I know there is. I'm just being hypothetical. Like, I'm being funny about this. But day and night, isn't there something to do with day and night in the New Testament? It's all at different levels, brother. Yeah, it's all at different levels, uh, Brother Derek. Uh, light light becomes significant very early on in the New Testament. In Matthew, you will find when Jesus begins his ministry, uh, there's a quote from Isaiah. I believe it's Isaiah chapter 9, and he talks about light has come to the people who sat in darkness. And, uh, and there where he came into the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, he describes it as a great light has come. And so... Uh, uh, very, very important. There's your, there's your light and your darkness. I might also add that uh, this corresponds to the menorah, which is the sacred candlestick, the ceremonial candlestick of the temple. And so you can see New Testament times, and you can see Jesus' ministry, and you can see everything laid out in the pattern of the tabernacle. And so where the New Testament times begin, you talked about this light and this darkness. Well, that's the menorah which is just past the entrance in the holy place where the priests ministered. And so that represents, as we find out from Hebrews chapter 9, that represents New Testament times in the first century. It represents the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, beginning there in the holy place. And, of course, uh, that ministry uh, continues. And then, of course, after his passion, there's the sending of the Holy Spirit, and that takes you all through the holy place right up into 70 A.D., which takes you to the curtain that goes into the Holy of Holies. And if you read Hebrews carefully, you will see that. But I want to, I want to just uh, point out something of er, uh, of that's fascinating to me, and that is the Hebrew word for heaven. Can I just focus on that for a moment? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay, I don't want to get too far afield here, but the Hebrew word for heaven is shomayim, shomayim. And it consists of the letter sheen, which means tooth, and, and mayim, which means waters. 
So if you can understand it pictographically, you may understand the heavens to be the waters of the tooth or the tooth waters, or if you will, the waters of the saying or the waters of the expression, that which comes out of the mouth. And so you've got the word of God as represented by this letter, Sheen, in Shomayim. The first, and it's only four letters, Derek, only four letters for the word heaven, Shomayim. And, and so, and so uh, Sheen is the first letter. The second letter is Mem, and Mem means water. The third letter is Yod, and Yod means hand. And the fourth and final letter is Mem, and again, Mem means water. So what you have is tooth or a word, then water, then a hand, and then water. So if you really look at this, suppose the first Mem represents the Sea of Reeds or the Red Sea. And suppose the Yod that's in between represents the Lord leading Israel by the hand through the wilderness. And suppose the final Mem in the word Shomayim represents the waters of the Jordan. So you have the word of God sending forth water and then his hand between the waters and then the final water. So in the word heaven, just in the word heaven, you have that entire concept that encompasses uh, the journey of the children of Israel. Hmm. Brother, that is, I love that. That's why I love having you on the phone and, and on the show. And uh, anyone who's listening, you guys got to private message me on Facebook and be like, get that guy back on there. We want to hear more. And any topics you want to hear more on, let me know and I'll talk to him. But, you know, on this, what you just mentioned about heaven, I think this is interesting because John chapter 3, almost anyone who's read the New Testament has read this because their favorite verse, a lot of people's favorite verse is John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Well, he's talking to Nicodemus. He talks about being born again. And I'm not trying to veer off the path here, but I thought it was interesting when it was talking about how Moses in the wilderness raised up the brazen serpent, so, so should Christ be raised up. Well, in John chapter 3, and let's read in, uh, let's see, verse 10, Jesus answered Nicodemus because he's like, how are these supposed to happen? Thou art the teacher of Israel, and these things thou dost not know. Verily, verily, I say to thee, what we have known, we speak, and what we have seen, we testify, and our testimony ye do not receive. If the earthly things I said to you, and ye do not believe, how if I shall say to you the heavenly things, will ye believe? And no one hath gone up to the heaven, except he who out of the heaven came down, the Son of Man who is in the heaven. Now, what's interesting is he is the Son of Man. He's talking to Nicodemus, and he's claiming to be in the heaven right now. He's claiming to be in the heaven. And he's isn't that wonderful? The, what, yeah. Isn't that wonderful? What a, what a great revelation. I'm talking to you right now, but I'm also in heaven right here at the same time. <laughs> I mean, you know, it parallels what Paul it parallels what Paul said in the opening verses of Ephesians two, right? He said that the church was at that moment seated in the heavens with Christ. Mm. Cor- correct. Amen. Amen. Seated in the yeah. heavens and yet having a presence on the earth. Amen. Yes, amazing. That is interesting. Wow, man, this is a this is I love doing this stuff because it just opens more and you start to see stuff and you and you you know go through reading more and looking for things because our concept of understanding heaven and earth. Um, is a covenantal thing. Rather than looking at this as a cosmological thing, as we always have, it's 
you know, necessarily looking up and saying, hey, when we're reading the words heaven and earth or dealing with heaven or dealing with earth or sea, we always think in physical cosmological terms. We're talking about actual water or we're talking about actual skies or we're talking about actual land um, rather than talking about a covenant thing. And I think that that's significant. That's why I opened this up, the, the whole broadcast, talking, Moses speaking to the children of Israel, and he's calling them heavens and earth. And he's asking the heavens and the earth to listen uh, to what he's about to say. And he's teaching them doctrine and all these things. So I, I thought that's interesting because this all, this whole first exodus and second exodus, do you believe that this all ties into a fulfilled understanding of eschatology and scripture? Does this all tie yes. into that? Oh, no question, Derek, no question. The New Testament writers understood that they were living the antitype of the children of Israel's exodus from Egypt. Um, Matthew understands it because he, he writes about, uh, about the, uh, uh, you know, God called his son out of Egypt, and that was fulfilled in the life of Jesus the child. He makes reference to it. He knew what was going on. Jude makes reference to it in his short epistle uh, and, and mentions it specifically and exhorts the church to have faith in the last days so that they won't be overthrown in the wilderness the way the children of Israel were. So they knew what was going on, and they understood the 40-year time frame. The interesting thing is that, first of all, the 40-year time frame is not subject to interruption, brother. There's no period of it that's put off for 2,000 years. It's 40 years, then comes the end, and you're delivered to the promised land. End of story. So how anybody could separate out such periods as the 70th week of Daniel is beyond me. Because the idea is that once it starts, it's going to finish. It'll all be over in 40 years. And so it was. And then we had the birth of the, of the high priest of Christ, the, the uh, head and the body, the head and the body uh, born into the world, head first, just like any other baby. And 70 A.D. come forth fully to minister and to uh, declare Christ's consciousness to the entire world. And it's a wonderful thing. So, yeah, they, they, they understood it, no question about it. They didn't know the day or the hour, but you don't have to know the day or the hour. Jesus, Jesus didn't say that you wouldn't know the year. He didn't say you wouldn't know the time. In fact, he went through great pains to say you wouldn't know the time, he told his disciples. You just wouldn't know the day or the hour. And so it all came to a head in 70 A.D., and incidentally, uh, the temple was destroyed on the 9th of Av, which is the same date, that the temple in uh, that the temple was destroyed uh, under Nebuchadnezzar. That is the first temple built by Solomon, same day of the year, and this is the ninth of Av, and it was the 129th day of the year. Does that sound familiar? It ought to. 129 is the root of 1290, Daniel chapter 12. On the 129th day of the year, God separated Himself from the old covenant. That's the number of separation. So here we have it again. Too many parallels. <laughs> there's so much. We don't have enough time. <laughs> Man, there's so much you brought up that I want to get into because it, it cracks me up. I love I love this. This is just this is what I, this is what I th just get into. So here's a question to you, Luke, because I want to hear your thoughts. I want to hear you uh, give some more. All right. Do you think that typologically an anti-type, if you will, or uh, shadow and reality the shadow in the Old Covenant that's pointing to a fulfilled understanding of the New of the, um, the Jericho's destruction, okay, with, with the whole, you know, them being in Jericho and uh, the walls coming down. 
versus the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. That one was with, with Joshua after they had come out of the wilderness. They came through the second body of water, if you will. Second baptism is in the New Testament. They had to put their enemies as their footstool. God had helped them put the enemies as their footstool. In the New Testament, the same thing was being done through the gospel. Their enemies were now becoming the footstool. They were now becoming servants. And to the ones who did not come into accepting that, they were destroyed. Would you agree that, that that's the type and anti-type with you know, the walls of Jericho coming down and then the destruction of the temple? Prima facie, it seems to be it. It seems reasonable, Derek. I, I would want to explore more and read more on the details of Jericho. I never thought about Jericho as being a type of Jerusalem's destruction, but it makes sense. I'd have to look into the Shemology, the origin of the name Jericho, and to compare some other things. But on its face, it seems like something reasonable uh, to consider. Hmm. So not one jot or tittle, the law can pass away until heavens and earth, you know, pass away, if I'm not mistaken. So, um, and we're dealing with heaven and earth here, uh, covenant right. people. Right, and, and so right. he had to fulfill those. Didn't he have to fulfill the law? Also, the, the law and the prophets, uh, or, you know, Matthew 5.18 or 17, do not suppose that I came to throw down the law or the prophets. I did not come to throw down, but to fulfill for verily I say to you, till that the heaven and the earth may pass away, one iota or one tittle may not pass away from the law till that all may come to pass. Hmm. Well, you know, so and we here's what Don Pre- yes, and here's yeah. what Don Preston points out is that uh, the fulfillment of the law includes not just the blessings but the curses as well. If you read that verse carefully, uh, were you quoting uh, Matthew chapter five verses seventeen and eighteen or thereabout? Is that what you just quoted? Yes, sir. Yeah. Right. Uh, right. So that indicates that the curses of the law would have to be fulfilled before the law was done with, uh, before the law was completely fulfilled. And so uh, in the book of Revelation, that's what you have, the curses of Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26. It's all there, along with the prophecies that, that were given, the ancient prophecies throughout the ages. So, yes, no question about it. In, in 40 years, we're dealing with a 40-year time frame uh, uh, just uh, beautifully in which everything was completed. Here's another parallel and also something to consider about those 40 years. Jesus said to the church at Pergamos, if I'm not mistaken, that uh, if they were faithful, he would feed them, he would give them the hidden manna, is what he said, hidden manna. That really is a quasi-time text because manna was was the you remember was the celestial food that dropped down that God dropped down to the children of Israel for the wilderness journey and it only lasted 40 years so if Jesus says I'm going to give you manna it's got to cease as soon as the church is delivered over to the promised land so it's really a time text because the manna ceased as soon as they ate the old corn of the land Joshua 5 says as soon as they ate that old grain on the very next day there was no more manna and so the hidden manna that Jesus is talking about was meant to feed uh, the church in the same way that the children of Israel were, susta- were sustained throughout their uh, uh, wilderness journey. And so, again, that's a parallel. You can add that to your list. <laughs> yes, I will. Man, there's so much we talked about. Um, I'm going to say one thing, and then I want to get some of your information out because we have seven minutes left, and I figured it would be best to go ahead and get your information out of the uh 
you know, right after this little uh, statement here. So, all right, just, just a parallel, and I'm not going over the whole list of things, but just paralleling the stories. And this is just a little piece of the information at the end of those, uh, those parallels I was given. So we have, in the story of Moses and the story of Jesus, a, it, there's a mirror going on. It's, it's type, anti-type. You've got the rock. Um, the rock is, uh, is there, which could provide salvation or water in Moses' story. Jesus is there who could provide salvation. And he was he was speaking in Revelation, uh, drinking of the water of life freely, and it's it's interesting um, in Revelation. What how that verse go there? It says that the uh, the spirit and the bride say, "Come," um, and those who hear say, "Come," and uh, how quote that verse? You know that verse off the top of your mind without me having to reference it, Luther? No, no, unfortunately I don't. But uh, but you have two you have two entities saying. Uh, who say come, and then he says, let the third entity come. So you have two who say come, and and then the third one comes. And if you want to, if you want to turn to it, it's Revelation 22. It's too good to misquote. And yeah, and, uh, and as a matter of fact, I do have it nearby now. It says, and the Spirit, and I'm reading. This is Revelation 22, and beginning in verse 17, it says, and the Spirit and the Bride say come. And let him that heareth say, Come. And let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Hmm. So we have the water of life, which comes from the rock, which is Jesus Christ. So you have the rock which was struck in Moses' story. Jesus was killed on the cross, which that's the rock being struck. <clears throat> you have the rock provides the salvation the water flows out of, saving the people in Moses' story. Jesus provides salvation. People are saved from his death. Now all the people who have to do is ask and water, or if you will, salvation, is freely given to them through the rock. In Moses' story, they ask for water. In Jesus, now all the people have to do is call upon the name of God or, uh, you know, ask for eternal life. And he was given freely to them through the rock, Jesus Christ. Moses, instead of asking again to get the free gift of grace or water, strikes the rock a second time. Jesus is not to be struck a second time. The free gift of salvation is already available. Um, I hope that makes more sense. So, with, you know, with the chart I was saying about the rock and so forth. But um, this this is some amazing stuff. Seeing the parallels, brother, and uh, we had you know a brief little program here just talking about it. Being that movie came out, um, me and my wife watched it. She liked it, um, but you know she hasn't really read the story like i have and, and you know i'm infatuated with the details of the story and the, that's why i was kind of like ashamed like man charlton heston did way better in his charlton heston man he, he he did way better and so i was like they need to put out a six six hour movie with the graphics we have today but if they just did it according to the story that's in our bibles man that would be a much hey. deeper better story hey derek but it's shocking me that you didn't mention anything about the special effects, dude. I would think you'd be all over the special effects, you know, which which is really what the modern movies have to offer over the Cecil B. DeVille days of the 1950s. So how were the special effects? Uh, they were good. There was some really good stuff, and special effects were great, and I watched it in 3D. But, man, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a lover of the details that we have in the Word of God. And I just don't think in the amount of time they were going to make that movie and the money probably trying to invest in that movie, that they would have been able to do the whole story. I mean, they really did not get enough. All they really got 
is it started off with him already in the house of Pharaoh with Ramesses II and the existing Pharaoh like died really soon after. So I don't want to spoil the movie for anyone, but there wasn't a broad picture and it didn't really give you too much detail. You know what I mean? I wish it was more yeah, detail because then you Oh, go ahead. No, no, please. I don't mean to interrupt. So you said, yeah, the lack of detail. You've got three minutes, brother. You might want to spill your beans. Tell them how to get a hold of you, brother. How do they get a hold well, of look, you? Well, look, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to do that. But yeah, I just want to say that, you know, special effects, the ability to do them, uh, they just kind of they become they become self promoting. You know, the more special effects you can do, the more you want to do them, and so everything becomes literal because you really want to see uh, the magician's staffs eat Moses' staff. We don't know if that stuff was literal, but if you have special effects, okay, let's let one big snake eat the smaller sta- snakes. It's like, oh please. All right, but anyway, uh, I, I just encourage our listeners to keep reading and to uh, keep on listening to programs like this one. You can get a hold of me through the website, drluther.com. That's D-O-C-T-O-R-L-U-T-H-E-R.com. You'll find free articles there and also access to my book, Ordering Information, Hidden in Plain Sight. The new book is coming out. It's called Still Hidden in Plain Sight. It's available on Amazon.com. And I think that's everything. Isn't that, Derek? That is. um, If you want to get a hold of Luther or myself, like Luther said, you can contact him that way. You can get a hold of me through Facebook. Just look me up. That's Derek Lambert. We're on this broadcast, but Derek, D-E-R-E-K, space Lambert, L-A-M-B-E-R-T. Just contact me, friend me, message me, whatever your thoughts are, and that's fine. Uh, You can disagree or agree. It doesn't matter. But, as you can see, we're wrapping up the show. (laughs) Um, But I did want to... um, to make the statement um, that there's going to be a conference coming up here in March the 20th of next year, and I'm going to be speaking there, and uh, Brother Luther is going to be seeing about that. So we'll know in time on what his plans are. But definitely be tuning in because we'll be mentioning more details on this conference coming up in New York. Um, Any last comments, Brother? Yes, sir. The last days are past days. Our hope is eternal but not infernal. And today is a gift. That's why it's called the present. That's my message. <laughs> I love you, man. You need to do that as a, like a little introduction or something. <laughs> hey, bro. Well, God bless that was designed. It was designed for my show, but you can have it today. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for coming on, brother. I'll be calling you in a bit here. Wonderful, brother. Thanks for having me on, Derek. Wonderful time. God bless everyone. Merry Christmas, too. God bless. All right, brother. Well, you heard it, uh, Bible Beacon Broadcast, your host, Derek Lambert here. Guys, check back in with us. We're going to be having all sorts of crazy, awesome, off-the-wall topics that nobody wants to talk about, nobody wants to deal with. They don't want to stand up to the face of giants like David. They don't have the faith or the courage. we got 10 seconds. What can I say? Hey, tune in with us next time. Keep, uh, keep your eyes open on Facebook. I'll let you know when the next one's out. God bless you.